Well, this morning we're going to be studying a passage that's really just so much at the center of the Christian faith, but something that can be easily misunderstood, especially when you are familiar with it like we are. It was you know, truth that we sang and touched on in all of the songs this morning. So I'm really excited that this last Sunday that I have with you, I get to, to teach you and especially to teach you out of uh, the passage in Isaiah that we're going to be looking at. So let's go to the Lord before we, we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect word that you've given to us. Thank you for the clarity of it. Thank you for the sufficiency of it. Lord, I know that in ourselves we cannot understand rightly what you have given to us, and we cannot believe it. So I pray, Lord, that you would give all of us the grace to hear with faith and that we would not simply understand the facts, but we would accept them and we would trust in them. Lord, I pray that you'd give grace to each one of these students this morning. Be with me as I preach to speak your word with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever seen something or been in a situation where you thought you understood what was going on and it made sense to you at the time and then later you looked back and realized, I had totally no clue what was actually going on. How many of you have ever, ever been in something like that? Yeah, so when I was little... I had an aunt, a great aunt, and, and she passed away. She went to be with the Lord. It was in the early summer. And then there was a 4th of July parade that myself and a number of my cousins were in. We were just we had decked out our bicycles and our uh, little pedal cars, and we had gone as part of this parade. And a couple of my cousins, had, they were walking there carrying this big banner that said, In Loving Memory of Aunt Jane. And so myself, as a kid, looking at that, I was here in this big parade. There's all these people in the parade. There's all these people lining the streets. And I'm seeing this big sign that my cousins are carrying. And I think, wow, all these people came out here marching the streets to honor my Aunt Jane. Wow, my Aunt Jane knew a ton of people. Wow, she must have just made a real impact in her life. And I was just came away so impressed with, with my Aunt Jane. Um, and then... Then I realized later, oh, that was just a 4th of July parade, and it was just a banner that my cousins had made, and they were walking in the 4th of July parade. So I, what, so I had totally misunderstood what was going on, totally misread the situation based on what I saw and observed. But, but why is it? Why is it that that happened? I came to the wrong conclusion because I looked around at what I could see from my own limited point of view, and... I had a thought that fit with my assumptions that I already had about what was going on. And I didn't really give any deep consideration to it. I just kind of, you know, there's the thought and I accepted it. And, and that was that. I, I ran with it. You know, it was a total misunderstanding of what was going on. But that that's illustration, that thought is going to be helpful for us as we turn to our passage this morning because the Bible is going to tell us some things that they are or should be kind of shocking and surprising to us. They shouldn't fit with our natural way of thinking. And we're going to be warned to not make the same mistake of looking at it from a natural and human point of view and coming to a conclusion that doesn't actually fit and doesn't actually understand what's going on. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapters 52 and 53. Now Isaiah, if you're looking for it, it's the first big book in your Bible after Psalms. So if your Psalms just keep flicking to get to a big book, and that'll be Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. That meant he revealed truth to God's people. He took what God said and he told it to them. Isaiah preached, it was about 700 years before Christ came. And this was even before, if you're familiar with the nation of Israel and Judah, how they went into captivity, this was, this was even before they went into captivity. Now, one of the most important characters in the book of Isaiah, who we're going to become very familiar with today, is called the servant of the Lord the servant of the Lord. That, that means not that he is a low position, but because he's the Lord's servant. He's, he's someone who does the Lord's will. And he's, Isaiah talks a whole lot about the great things that God is going to do in the future in saving his people. And the servant is the one who brings these things about. The servant is the one who God sends to accomplish what he's going to do in saving his people. Chapter 49, a couple of chapters before our text, says that the servant was an Israelite who God had formed from his mother's womb to bring Israel back to God in repentance and that he will also be a light to the nations beyond Israel to all the Gentile nations of the world 
bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. This servant we now know as Jesus, Jesus Christ. He came to accomplish God's salvation. But he didn't do it in a way that makes sense to us naturally. What God did to accomplish salvation through Jesus, when you really dig into it, just doesn't make sense from human wisdom and human way of looking at it. It's offensive to our natural pride and instincts. If you look at what Jesus did and consider it from what you can observe, you're going to come to the wrong conclusions, just like I came to the wrong conclusions about that 4th of July parade. That is why the nation of Israel largely rejected him, because they looked at him from that external perspective rather than believing what God had said. Because 400, or excuse me, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah had told them exactly what Jesus was going to do and how it was going to be misunderstood. So they not only had a prophecy telling them about what he was going to do and how it would be hard to understand and hard to believe, but also that there would be many who would fail to believe it. At the same time, though, he also prophesied that many would understand, they would know, and they would believe, and they would be saved. So our text this morning is Isaiah 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. And it's going to show us five shockers of the Lord's servant's saving work that demand belief. These are five shockers about the Lord's saving work through his servant that demand belief. So in other words, these are five unexpected features of how the servant of the Lord would bring about salvation. And even though they were off-putting to Israel at the time, and, and they may still be to us now, we must accept them as true. So I'm going to read uh, in Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13, and continue through the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you... His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We, are like, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the first shocker that we see in this really amazing text is that the servant's horrifying suffering brings many to God. There's the first blank there in your handout. The servant's horrifying suffering brings many to God. And this is in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. Now we initially here come to what would not be a shock. 
the Lord says that his servant will act wisely and be exalted as a result. That means he will act knowing exactly what to do to bring about the desired outcome, and so he will be honored. Now, not much is shocking there. That makes sense. That makes sense with what we think about someone who's, who's here sent by God particularly to do his will. But we soon realize that this wisdom is not man's wisdom. Verse 14 describes the response to the servant's condition. As many were astonished at you. Now this word astonished has the idea really of being horrified. This is kind of the feeling you would get if you maybe were to see on the news some images of some city that was entirely devastated, it and its people, by a war. This is the image that you would see if you see someone who's just in a terribly, sickly, almost dead kind of condition. That feeling of kind of horror and almost revulsion at what has happened to them. That is the response that they have. The servant's description is pitiable. We see that Isaiah says his, his appearance and form was ruined. It was disfigured, uh, permanently damaged. And it was to such a degree that he hardly looked human. It says beyond human semblance. The people who would have seen the servant in his sufferings would have said, not been thinking to ask, oh, is this the, the great servant of the Lord who's been come to, to do God's will and to save his people, the question that would have come to their minds is, is that even a human? Is that even a person? That, that is the degree to which he was humiliated. So now you can see why this is a shocker. How could it be that the servant of the Lord could be in such a degraded position? And more importantly, why would he go through that? Now Isaiah is not going to answer those questions now. We're going to see those answers as we work through this text. But for now, in verse 15, we see the effect. We see what the result is of this uh, degraded condition. That just as they were astonished, so he shall sprinkle many nations. The point being compared is the reason behind each action. In 14, many were astonished because of the servant's inhuman appearance. And in 15, many nations are sprinkled because of the servant's inhuman suffering. So sprinkling, not immediately clear what that is, but it happened a lot under the Old Testament. It would be used any time that somebody was unclean because of a sickness like leprosy. They got rid of the disease, and now they were able to come back before God, and the priest would sprinkle them before they would actually be able to come back into God's presence. The same thing would happen with priests. When they were set apart to serve God as priests, before they were made priests, part of that process was that they would be sprinkled before they could come near to God. So this idea of sprinkling is of bringing them into God's presence to worship him. Now this is really exciting because in the Old Testament, there weren't many nations that were coming near to God to worship him. There was just one. It was Israel. The other nations were all but excluded from, from God and from, from the worship of the true God. But now, 2,000 years later, after Jesus, the servant of the Lord, has come, we see that this has indeed been fulfilled. Many nations have indeed come. People from many nations have indeed come and are worshiping God because of what Jesus has done. We, we ourselves in this room are evidence of that. I'm sure not many, if any of us, are, are Jews or of Jewish descent. But because of what Jesus has done in the suffering, which reached inhuman levels, we are able to come and worship God. So not only, though, would many nations be brought near to God, but their leaders, their kings, it says, will shut their mouths. Isaiah is predicting that the great and powerful of this world would be brought to silence, no longer talking proudly about whatever they thought, but, but humbled into a submissiveness. And the reason, which is also given in verse 15, is that they see what they have not been told and understand what they had not heard. In other words, what they didn't previously know now makes sense to them. They hadn't previously heard about it, but now they understand it. And to get what Isaiah is saying here, we need to remember again that difference between Israel and the other nations. Israel had heard. They, they had seen God's revelation. They had seen God's saving power at work for them. And they knew about his salvation. But in large measure, as we'll see, they didn't believe it. Now, the Gentile nations, on the other hand, they didn't have God's revelation. They didn't, they didn't know about that. They didn't see that before. And now Isaiah is saying that they will see and they will understand. 
sort of pull together this section, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. The real shocker is that the servant would experience horrifying suffering, but that through that suffering, he would be exalted. And not only Israel, but many nations would be brought near to God because of what he did. This then brings us to the second shocker of the Lord's servant's saving work that demands belief. And this is that the servant's despicable condition leads to rejection. The servant's despicable condition leads to rejection. This is in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see there several times the word despised, just to look down on someone. That's, that's the word despicable. He was a condition that people looked down upon. So Isaiah turns here, and he goes from describing how the Gentile nations who had not previously heard about God's revelation would understand to asking a question. And what he asks is, who, who have heard God's revelation, believe it? Now, the implied answer is, not really anyone. Of those who had heard God's revelation, very few actually believed. Then he asks the second question of who had received revelation of the arm of the Lord. Now, the arm of the Lord represents God's saving power. You know, the arm is a symbol of strength. We even do that now. Strong, you you, know, you make a bicep. There's the, that arm idea. So when you hear the, the arm of the Lord, that's God's big bulging bicep that he uses to save his people. Now, Israel had seen this arm at work when they had been saved way back at the beginning of their history out of the Exodus. God many times says that he saved them with an outstretched arm, his arm working for them mightily. But God says he's going to act with his arm again. He's going to act and bring his people and save them out of the exile that they're going to be sent into as a judgment for their sin. Earlier in Isaiah, in this section of Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is called upon to awake and act to save his people. Then he promises to bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all will see the salvation of God. Now in our text, Isaiah asks, to whom this arm has been revealed? Well, the answer, of course, is, it was revealed to Israel in the past. This new future saving action of God has not yet been revealed. But they had that earlier display of God's saving power, and they should have believed when they were told about the later one. So the effect, really, of these two questions is to say this. Israel had seen God's saving power working for them in the past. So they should have believed when they were told that his saving power would work for them again in the future. But they did not believe because of, and this is what we're going to get to, the humble and despised condition of the servant. Now, there's a warning here for all of us who hear and sit under God's truth week after week. Israel heard God's truth. They knew it. They, uh, they had a, some understanding of it. They, they sat in their, I guess it had been Saturday school, and they, they learned about all the things of God's word. But hearing the message is not enough. If you don't accept it for yourself, believe it, and submit to it, it profits nothing and really only increases your accountability before God for all the things that you know. So verse 2 then is going to now explain why it was so hard to believe that the servant was God's saving powerful arm. It was in some measure hard to believe because of how contrary it is to our, our own human ways of thinking. First, we see that he had humble human origins. And Isaiah is going to communicate this with two analogies. He, he grew up before him as a young plant. That, the idea of a young plant is literally uh, a sucker, a suckling. Um, you know, sometimes you see a little plant growing up on the side of a, a bush or a tree, and I've, I've heard that called a, a sucker plant. I don't know much about plants, but I've heard that called a, a sucker because it ends up kind of sucking away nutrients. Um, that's kind of the idea. This word could also be used for a very small infant who is still nursing. Um, so the idea here is a very weak and dependent form of life. When Jesus came, he was born as everyone else, as a little tiny infant. As someone who just recently had a little tiny infant, uh, they're very dependent for absolutely everything. 
And that's just an incredible picture of the humiliation of the servant when he came, that he came with that kind of humility. He did not grow up in front of the world, but was secluded only before the Lord. Now, the second analogy, a, a root from dry or parched ground, is really easy for us to understand here in Arizona. Living in the desert should be easy to picture some really dry, parched ground. So get in your mind the driest, most parched ground that you've seen. Now picture a nice leafy green plant springing up from that ground. Not what you expected, is it? Not where you would expect that kind of plant to come from. And that's the idea. That's what it was like for Jesus to come as the servant of the Lord, being born to a peasant girl, betrothed to a carpenter in the village of Nazareth in Galilee. It's totally unexpected in terms of where the servant of the Lord would be coming from. But next we see that beyond that, his humble origins, he's also not attractive. Isaiah says that the servant lacks three things, form, majesty, and beauty. The idea is everything that might make you look at someone and want to be with them, everything that would make you look at someone and be attracted to them, he didn't have. There was nothing outwardly attractive about him. And as a result, Isaiah says, there is no reason to look at him and no reason to desire him. Then in verse 3, we see that he was despicable. He was someone who people looked down on. They had a terribly low opinion of him, and so they avoided being around him. Now, the phrase man of sorrows, I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's a very common phrase that we say because it's such a great description of what the Lord did, but it's easy to misunderstand. You could hear the phrase man of sorrows and think that Jesus, when he came, was like Eeyore. He was always sad and glum, always downer. He always had a pouty face on. That's not at all what man of sorrows means. This word sorrows is, refers to the, the physical or the mental pain and anguish, and almost always it's directly a consequence of sin. This is the, the direct consequences of sin that we feel in our lives, in our bodies, in our hearts. And Jesus, as the servant, so closely associated himself with those consequences of sin that he could be called the man of sorrows, the man of those things. This is also significant um, because it says he was acquainted with or experienced in grief. Now, grief also refers to, to the consequences of sin. In verse 4, we'll see that the servant bore our griefs. And, and actually, not only did he experience them, but then he took them away from us. So these consequences of sin, which, which we live with daily, whether our own sin and our guilt, or perhaps things in our lives that happened as a result of our sin, or even just the general consequences of living in a fallen world and around a bunch of other people who are sinning to us. Jesus associated himself with those things. He lived those things that we have to live. Now, as a result of all this, that was humble and despicable at the servant's condition, he was rejected. People didn't even want to look at him. In Isaiah, speaking for all of us who once rejected the servant, but now accept him and have come to believe, says that we did not esteem him. In other words, we took an external glance at Jesus, and he seems so obviously not to be the servant who would bring about God's salvation that we didn't even give serious consideration to whether he was or not. The main thrust of this section is that the servant, Jesus, was not outwardly desirable and, close to the, and he was closely associated with the consequences of our sin so much that people who looked at him and just saw him with, with their natural eyes, they rejected him. Totally not the Lord, totally not the one who's going to accomplish what the Lord's going to do. Now, this section in particular is, is really rich with implications for us. It should be noted that the servant did not lack those things of attraction or desirableness out of some just accident. God planned it that way. God intentionally did not give Jesus what would be outwardly attractive so that those who are attracted just to externals wouldn't come to him. Israel, at the time, they were focused on the outward. And so they did not believe, as this description of the servant makes clear why. So if you're attracted to the humanly 
desirable things that may be in Christianity. You're not attracted to the real thing. You must either deepen and realize the substance and the reality of what Christianity is about and submit to that, or eventually when pressure comes, you will either turn to a fake Christianity or you will abandon it altogether. An object of attractiveness or splendor is desirable because it was, does of what it does for us. And it's easy, especially growing up in a Christian family, to, to be attracted to Christianity because of all the things it does for you. Your parents want you to be a good Christian. People around you, your friends, want you to be a good Christian. And so it's easy to try to fit into that out of what you see it can do for you in her human terms or how it makes you look. But that is not coming to the real suffering servant because he was despised and rejected. There's nothing outwardly desirable, and so we must come to the reality of what he's doing and be willing to accept and join in his sufferings. Further, we have more implications from this, because this is, again, just a rich, a rich section. When we see how our Lord Jesus was evaluated by outward appearance, and God intentionally made Jesus in the body that he formed for him to not fare well under an evaluation of outward appearance, we see that we must not judge by outward appearances, by looks, by splendor, honor, anything that we can see, any form of human attractiveness or repulsiveness, for our Savior was humanly repulsive. When we evaluate others by appearance, we use the same logic that led Israel to reject Messiah, their Christ. The same is true when we evaluate association with someone by how they will make us look, how they will make us feel socially comfortable around them. So this section is, is really a death blow to, to any kind of vanity or pride in appearance or in coveting appearance, as well as you could say anything there, really family origin, um, wealth, perceived capability or independence, anything else that, that we think on a human level as status factors. Jesus had none of those. And so we can't place a value on them if, if our Savior did not have those. And then it also shows us that that we should not be concerned with getting approval and being liked by other people. This can be a, a really dominating temptation, especially for those of you in, in your age group, in junior high and high school, that you want people to think well of you. You're forming who you are, and so you want other people to, to like you. And that can be natural, but it can be a dominating temptation where we're no longer seeking to please the Lord. So is your mind filled by thinking about what other people think about you? If you want to be freed from a slavery to thinking about man's approval rather than God's, consider that if Christ thought that way, he never would have gone to the cross. If Christ was intent on getting man's approval, he never could have suffered what he needed to suffer for our salvation because it involved being despised, being rejected, being humiliated. He was so filled with a desire to please his father and to do the will of him who sent him, that he was willing to be rejected by everyone, to be despised by everyone. So, we have five shockers of the servant's saving work that demand belief, the servant's horrifying rejection that brings many to God, the servant's despicable condition leads to rejection, and now, thirdly, the servant's God-given punishment was for our sin. The servant's God-given punishment was for our sin. And this is the central piece of the text and, and really the most important. I'll read in, in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So the word surely strongly affirms the truth of what's about to be said, even though it seems to contradict what would be expected from what was just said before. So even though the external appearance of the servant made it look like uh, he was not the one who would do God's saving work, he was. So in this verse, we have explained the meaning of the servant's sufferings that we already saw established. Now to say that the servant bore and carried our, our griefs and sorrows is to say that he took them off of us 
and put them on himself to take them away from us. These sorrows are, as we noted, the consequences of sin. These are the, the guilt and the uh, other consequences that come as a result of what we have done against God. Now, this language of taking up and, and carrying away, especially one of those words, is the same language of substitution that would have happened at the Day of Atonement for Israel. When they, in the sacrificial system God had set up for them, because God was teaching them about the need to have sin taken care of and dealt with, they would put their sins on the head of, of one of the goats. And it is said that he would carry that away. And so Isaiah is picking up on that language and saying, this is what the servant is going to do. Now, it is easy to draw the wrong conclusions from the right facts. We see in verse uh, end of verse 4, that we who once rejected and now accept the Savior at one time considered him to be struck down and afflicted by God. And the idea here is that we, we saw that he was afflicted by, stricken by God and that that was for what he deserved. He was indeed struck down and afflicted by God. That part was correct, but it's not for what he deserved, but for what we deserve. As verse 5 states, he and no other was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Now, transgressions are, those are the ways that we have rebelled against God. God said, do this, and we didn't. God said, don't do this, and we did it. Our rebellion against God. Iniquities, that speaks about the way that we're just twisted and bent against what God desires. For all of these, we deserve to be, pier we deserve to be pierced and crushed under God's wrath. Yet Jesus, the servant, stood in the believer's place, and he was pierced and crushed on our behalf. Now, the, the chastisement here, it's, it's punishment, which is the same word of, of discipline. I'm sure you all have, at one point or another, probably just once for most of you, been disciplined by your parents, right? It probably just happened once you did something wrong, and then there was punishment that needed to come, and probably just once did it. Um, that's this word, discipline. It's punishment that needs to come because of something done wrong. We deserved a punishment from God, uh, immense punishment that we didn't have the capacity to handle. And he says here that instead of coming on us, the punishment came on him. And amazingly, we see that it is the, the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. As unbelievers in sin, when you were an unbeliever, or if you still are, you are not at peace with God. God is God is that in hostility towards you because of your sin and because of all the things that you've done against him. But through the punishment that came on Christ, we can have peace with God. Further, his wounds bring us healing, which in this context is primarily referring to, to healing from the consequences that we deserved because of our sin. We cannot be saved from the punishment that we deserve without Christ's wounds and without the chastening he took. They're identified as the means that bring about peace with God. So you cannot stop short and merely have an acknowledgement of what Jesus did at the cross, what he did for us, and just acknowledge that generally. You have to move on further and past that to say that he was suffering on the cross and being pierced because of my rebellion, because of my iniquity. And that it's only in his wounds that I can be healed. The shocking nature of the servant doing this for us really comes into fuller view in verse 6 and why this is such a shock. Because we are not worthy of this. We don't deserve this at all. Verse 6 describes us. We all like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. We are prone to wander. And even when we're not actively trying to rebel, we certainly fall into some sin or another. But more than what we do intentionally, we actively turn ourselves away from the path that God has declared that we should be on and turn aside to our own path that we want to walk on, that we want to live by. And in case you've ever perhaps doubted if, if you are one of those people that has sinned badly enough to need the salvation of Christ and to need to be covered by the blood of Christ, this includes all of us, all of us, each one. We're all included in this sinful state. But what an amazing thing that the Lord 
through his servant, would save such people like us in such a costly way. What incredible love of God to do this. The Lord is, is God's personal saving name, Yahweh. And here it shows up for the first time in this passage. And it says that he laid on him or gathered onto him the iniquity of us all. All the sin of every believer, God gathered together and put on the servant. What an amazing act of love and mercy. And also, what a shock. Why would God do that? The only answer is his great love. But it was not just the Lord who loved us in order to save us that way, but it was also the love of the servant, Jesus, who willingly took on this task. And we're going to see that clearly in our fourth shocker, which is, we're taking notes, the servant submitted to punishment, although innocent. So shocker number four, the servant submitted to punishment, although innocent. This is in verses seven to nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here we see the servant's willingness to take our sin on himself. He did not protest. He did not complain. He did not resist, even though he didn't deserve any of the punishment that was coming on him. There's two related illustrations that Isaiah gives, that of a sheep being led off to be killed and that of a, uh, or a lamb rather, and that of a sheep being led to, to be sheared or to have its wool cut off. Now, sheep are submissive animals. They go where they're led. And whether they're being led to be killed or whether they're being led to just have their wool cut off, they, they just go where they're led, submissively. And that submissiveness and coming under the leading is what is being highlighted here as a comparison, even though Jesus knew exactly what he was going to. A sheep might not know what it's going to, but Jesus knew exactly the suffering that he was heading towards. We recently heard in 1 Peter 2, if you've been been here as Roy's been teaching through that, that Jesus responded in this way to unjust suffering with, with silence and with submission to his Father's will is an example to us. I, Peter even quotes and refers to this passage uh, that we're studying now. Just like Jesus submitted willingly to his Father's will, so should we, even when we're being unfairly treated. Now, verse 8 indicates that what actually sent the servant to death was injustice. It was through an oppressive legal system that he was taken away to be crucified, and he did not deserve that sentence of condemnation that came upon him. But again, he didn't complain. He didn't talk back. He didn't argue against, this is not right, this is unjust, this shouldn't be happening. He, he went along because he was submitting to what God had called him to do in suffering for our sins. But even in this, once again, we're met with a sad reality. It says, as for his generation, who considered? Those that alive at the time, the Israel around him, they didn't give serious consideration to why he died. They did not realize that why he was going, and they did not realize what was going on. Because they did not consider that the reason that he was cut off and stricken was, as it says here, the transgression of my people. And once again, you see why, why these shockers demand belief. That's why I have that in the heading of our outline. You can't just kind of take these and just be like, yeah, yeah, take it or leave it. These demand that you believe them. And they are woven throughout with this understanding that Israel... They did not believe them. They did not seriously consider them. They did not accept them. It is easy to be familiar with the basic facts of Christ's ministry. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard from when you are too young to remember that Christ died for your sins and that by trusting in Christ you can be saved from your sins. And that, that's a great mercy and a great grace in your lives. But don't let that familiarity with it make you... Um, not see the necessity of believing it and accepting it. Now, the innocence of the servant is underscored in verse 9. As someone condemned to die, 
His grave was naturally supposed to be with wicked men. It says they made his grave with the wicked. But instead, it says he was buried with a rich man when he died. Now, when Jesus died, this is exactly what happened. He died on the cross, and they were going to take his body down and just dump it into the common grave with the other criminals. But instead, you may remember, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, took him off the cross and, and prepared his body well for burial and put him in a brand new tomb. This is exactly what happened. It's a completely surprising reversal of what you might expect. And it gives evidence to the fact that Jesus did not deserve to be associated with the wicked. He didn't deserve to be buried with them because he was not one of them. The text gives the reason as, as Jesus' comprehensive innocence. He didn't do wrong, and he didn't say wrong. And so because of his innocence, it is a shocker that the servant would so willingly accept this punishment. He didn't deserve any of it, but he willingly took it on. And because of his innocence, he was able to take it on on our behalf. So we now see the fifth and final shocker of the Lord's servant's saving work that demands belief. The servant's reward is many made righteous. The servant's reward is many made righteous. This is in verses 10 through 12. The climax of the whole passage comes here, and it really pulls it all together. Even though the servant was innocent, the Lord's will, what he pleases to do, was to crush him and put him to grief. He, he did that in order to accomplish salvation. He wasn't coerced into it, but that was, that was his good pleasure to do. But when... The servant's soul makes a guilt offering. All these great rewards that come in the rest of verse 10 through 12 is what follows. This is what the Lord sent the servant to do, to make an offering for guilt, to make a sacrificial offering that would cover and pay for the guilt of sinners who believe in him. So Jesus, who is sent to do the Father's will, went to the cross to make a sacrifice for our guilt. And the Father, having accepted, uh, accepted that sacrifice, then highly exalted him. And we see that here. Now these rewards, they come in quick succession. They require a little bit of explanation. Um, this idea that he will see his offspring is a really rich concept in the Old Testament, this idea of offspring. I don't have time to get into it in detail. It runs all the way through God's promises of salvation. And it has both an individual and a group idea. There's an individual offspring is coming, and that is Jesus. And there's also this group offspring that Jesus saves. And in Isaiah, he totally has in view this group offspring idea. And so, essentially, the offspring in Isaiah is the restored remnant of Israel that the Lord will save and protect. And here we learn that that restored remnant, that group that God saves out, comes into existence because of the suffering that the servant has undergone. Next, he will prolong or, or lengthen his days. Now, this doesn't just mean a long physical life, though it does. This was actually the promised blessing of obedience to the law. Every time when the Lord gives, this is what will happen if you obey the law, most of those times he says, you'll have length of days. You will prolong your days in the land that I'm giving you. So here we see that that the servant received these covenant blessings of obedience. But also, you have to remember the servant, he had already died. It said earlier that he was cut off from the land of the living. That's clearly saying that he died. And now he's going to prolong his days. So Isaiah doesn't say it explicitly, but there, there is in here a clear idea that he was raised from the dead. And that he indeed is alive and active is evident from the next reward. It says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, for something to be in someone's hand, it's to be under their control, their direction. You could say their authority. For the Lord's will to prosper means that he's going to succeed. So the servant is now, having suffered, is now being entrusted with carrying out and accomplishing God's will. This is, this is just an incredibly high position. You may remember Joseph is a great illustration of this because when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, he was a slave to Potiphar, but God was calling everything he did, causing it to prosper. That's the same word that, that's used here. And so his, his master saw that, hey, everything this guy's doing is doing well. So he put everything into his hand, and the Lord caused it to prosper. So just like Joseph was in charge of everything that was going on in Potiphar's household, and it prospered under it, 
So Christ, as the servant, is now, having suffered, in charge of all that God is doing and executing his will, and he's causing it to prosper. Now, verse 11 continues these rewards with the reality that the servant will not fail to accomplish anything he desired to by his sufferings. Even though the anguish of his soul was massive, he'll be satisfied with the results. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, his satisfaction comes in what he accomplishes for his people. They're referred to throughout this passage as the many, that there's going to be many that, that Christ is going to save. They were once astonished, we saw at the beginning of the passage, by the servant's suffering, but now have come to benefit by it. Now, the servant is identified as the righteous one, the righteous one, my servant, because he is perfectly righteous. And having no sin in himself, he is able to be a substitute for our sin. What he does, and follow this closely, is make many to be accounted righteous and take away their iniquities. This, in a word, is justification. You have both sides of it. Declaring a sinner righteous in his standing before God and the removal of the guilt of his sin. We're going to hear all about this in the, the coming weeks and months as we are listening to Romans in main service. We're about to get into a main, probably the biggest section in the Bible on justification. But here in Isaiah, you already see both sides clearly. Righteousness is counted where there was none, and iniquities are removed where they had been there. This is what we as sinners need most. We are full of the guilt of sin and have no righteousness by which we can stand before God. We have no ability to come into his presence. But through the sacrifice and the sufferings of the servant, he counts those he saves as righteous. And he takes away their guilt so that we can, as was said earlier, have peace with God. We must have Jesus, the servant of the Lord, credit his righteousness to us. This is why the suffering of the servant was so necessary and why he went to accomplish this justification that we so desperately and sorely need. But notice how this justification happens. Middle of verse 11 says, by his knowledge. This is the means. This is how justification happens. And I believe it's best to understand this not as the servant's knowledge of something, but of our knowledge of the servant and what he's done. As we've seen throughout this passage, it cannot be a simple understanding or knowledge of the facts of Jesus' suffering and death. There must be a believing knowledge that acknowledges Christ's sacrifice as being for me and willingly submits to it and its implications. Verse 12, then, will give the final climactic reward of the servant's suffering. And it shows that us being justified, as great as that is, isn't the final benefit or the ultimate goal. So this is the final climactic reward, and it shows that it's not ultimately about us. Uh, you see a therefore at the beginning of verse 12. And it basically says, based on all that the servant has done and undergone, this is what the Lord is going to do. Uh, and unfortunately, the way most translations do the first part of verse 12 isn't the most helpful. Um, because of how the many have been throughout this passage, those that the servant is saving, and because of the high position that the servant is raised to, it's, it's really best to read the first part of verse 12 as, Therefore, I will divide him a portion consisting of the many, and he shall divide the strong as spoil. So the many and the strong are actually the spoils that are being divided out and shared with Christ, and that he is then portioning out himself. The imagery here is, is a victorious king. He comes back from the battle with plunder, and he is able to distribute it to whose he will because he has won that battle. So Christ then is placed in the supreme position of authority to distribute even the strong as he desires. The basis of this victory, though, which is incredible because it, it shows that the many are given to Christ. The Lord apportions to Christ those whom he saves. And we see this in the book of John, the Gospel of John, how God has given those whom he saves to the Son, whom he, 
who he purchases. But it's uh, here that we see just a final summary. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Once again, we see the reality that Christ was our substitute, that he bore the sin of many. And not only was he our substitute, but he's also our go-between, who's able to intercede for us and to bring us to peace with God. So, we've seen these five shockers of the Lord's servant's saving work that demand belief. And Isaiah now puts the question really to you. We've seen these questions throughout this passage. And he puts it to you. Will you give careful attention to this reality that God has revealed to us so as to understand it and accept it and believe it? Will you submit to it? Or will you, like Israel at the time of Christ, look only at the external view? You may temporarily be attracted to Christ and to Christianity because of what you see it may gain for you. But when the reality of Christ's sufferings comes to you and you are called to share in them, you will not last if you do not have a foundation in what Christ has actually accomplished. You must understand your desperate need to have your sins taken away and carried away by the servant so that the punishment that you deserve can be put on him. For those of us who have believed and have trusted in Christ as the substitute that God has provided, how should we live to be consistent with the way that Christ died and the, the shocking way that he, he saved us. He did not care about being despised by men. He did not care about having nothing attractive about him. He only sought to do the will of the Father in accomplishing the salvation that God had sent him to do. May we do the same in what God has commanded us to do as Christians, not being concerned with, with men, not be concerned with, with what they think or outward appearance, uh, but with obeying God who has called us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity of it. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, as your servant to do your will and to accomplish salvation. Lord, we are so sinful, so much like sheep in that we constantly go astray. And yet in your great love, you have sought us and you have sent your son to suffer for us that we could be saved and reconciled to you. Lord, I pray for all the students here that you would grant them the grace to believe and to trust in the saving work of Jesus, your servant, on their behalf. Lord, I pray that, that none here would be like Israel and, and hear but not really give attention, not really consider, but that all of them would, by your mercy, be brought to, to saving faith in your Son. Lord, we ask that, that you would give us your grace to live in light of how you sent your Son, that we would not seek the world's praise or, or wisdom, but would only seek to please you. Be with us this week as we, we seek to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.